welcome to Wait, Politics or Psychology, the podcast where we discuss everything politics, psychology, and in between. I'm Leah, I'm your host, and I'm very, very interested in both of these um, issues. Today we have a very special uh, topic for you. The topic is refugee mental health and psychosocial interventions and policies. Um, our case today is Germany. Um, and we'll dive a little deeper into the policies that exist, German welfare state, how the system is built up, and how it could possibly be harmful. To do that, um, we have some special guests who will tell us a little bit more about their experiences. We'll follow a story um, of one refugee who came to Germany and will kind of follow her through all the stages and um, through her personal mental health journey. But before um, we get started, I'd like to point your attention to what's going on and how the current COVID-19 crisis can kind of r relate and help us empathize with um, the policies and the decisions and the situations a lot of people are in. So if we think about it, COVID-19 and the regulations and restrictions placed on many of us kind of resemble what a lot of refugees go through. So um, all of us not being able to go outside, being on lockdowns, um, having our personal freedoms taken away, having this uncertainty, not knowing what's happening next, um, are kind of similar. And of course, it will never be the same and we'll never understand how it's really like to leave your home and really not knowing what's going on and really not being able to kind of plan anything and having your life in the hands of some bureaucratic foreign state that you've never been to. Um, we can for sure learn from how we felt ourselves in these uncertain situations and how we felt ourselves um, kind of not being able to plan, not being able to travel, not kind of needing more help or giving more help. Um, and we can take those experiences and kind of try to relate to how it must feel like if that's your life for multiple years in a foreign country. We'll take it back to this point and to this discussion later on, but that's just something I would like you to keep in mind while we uh, follow Mary's story. Of course, Mary is not her real name. I chose the name since it's the most common name in the world. But I had a chance to meet her uh, while I was working with um, refugees myself in Germany in 15. And um, she agreed to me uh, using parts of her story, but uh, she didn't want to be mentioned by name, so we'll call her Mary. But before we dive deeper into the story and into the German system, as well as the mental health and psychosocial support uh, policy, I would like to introduce the people who were kind enough to talk to me for today's episode. On one hand, that is Dorothea. We met um, last year in Amsterdam and she worked for an organization called the Wereldhaus. And she'll quickly um, describe herself what that is. The organization, the Wereldhaus, which is a day center for undocumented migrants. And it is founded by the Diakoni. And, well, it's like a normal day center with opening hours where people can just get their, um, get help. Um, you can have like an intake with one of the social workers to ask different kind of questions, where you're from, what do you need, um, about the Dublin regulation, if you've been in another country, if you need legal help or health, 
care, whatever you need. Exactly. I also spoke to a friend of mine, her name is Antonia, who worked with refugee children in Berlin. Um, and she then referred me to um, her friend, his name is Vincent, and he also was kind enough to give me an interview. Since we did those interviews in German, I will either recite what they told me or have somebody else read out their responses. story to begin with. Like so many others, she also took the Balkan route, meaning that she left Syria into Turkey, traveled through Turkey, jumped on a boat on the Turkish coast, went over to Greece, from Greece to Macedonia, through Serbia, Croatia, into Slovenia, and then Austria. From Austria, she went through the Czech Republic to Germany, which is where I met her. The process for applying for asylum is unified throughout Europe through the Asylum Procedure Directive. So each asylum seeker is received at a reception center, is giving material recepting condition is what they called, um, such as housing and food there. That's according to the reception condition directive. And then later, each applicant's fingerprints are taken and sent to the common European database, Eurodac. And in that database, um, all of the asylum seekers' data is collected and it's meant to identify the country responsible for the asylum application. Because according to the Dublin regulation, the first country or the first European country that um, an asylum seeker entered is where they have to, where their asylum has to be granted. So they have to kind of stay in that country and that country is responsible. Usually, um, each asylum applicant is then interviewed by a caseworker. That caseworker gets to determine whether the refugee status is granted and the subsidiary protection received or not. If the status is granted, then the person gets even more um, support usually taken into the welfare system of that country, into the labor market, given health care, everything else. If the asylum is not granted, the applicant is refused and that refusal can be appealed by a court. If it's overturned, then the person gets to gets their asylum status later. If not, then the person is returned to his or her country of origin. These mental health issues are also something that uh, Dori noticed in her work with undocumented migrants in the Wereldhaus. But overall, of course, you were feeling like um, the hopelessness in a lot of people's uh, lives and what they've been through. And it was just really touching to hear their stories and how they came there and how they've been uh, treated by other governments or um, just basically people in uh, higher positions that it's really just you're a number and you just fast, 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 quickly, quickly. So, yeah, it was, yeah, mental health, I think, is a big issue with refugees. But I think oftentimes they cannot really afford to think about it mm -hmm. because they just have so much other things to deal with, like just basic things like where I'm going to sleep, what I'm going to eat, if they have a child, um, how I'm going to take care of my child, or it, am I able to get work, stuff like that. So I think just really think about your mental health it's kind of a luxury mm -hmm. we are like yeah. more european seven people in that kind of situations are 
by not really thinking much about um, what can I do to better my mental health. They're just like, okay, I need to this, this and that, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna have more time to think about other things. So yeah, I think the the priorities are a little bit different, maybe. Mm-hmm. So now we heard how difficult it can actually be for asylum seekers to come to Europe and what the process to actually be able to stay and get the refugee status can be. But what actually um, happens in Germany, the country that we're looking at uh, for today? Germany has traditionally been seen as the archetypical conservative welfare state, but according to some experts, it can no longer be classified as such and is uh, moving towards more liberal uh, welfare states with employment and pension systems, but becoming more similar to Scandinavian models um, in their social policies, for example, in family policies. We could assume that that might also be what opened the door to actually accept all the refugees and to suspend the Dublin regulation in 2015 to allow people to stay. Um, that Germany is actually opening up socially um, could also be an explanation why the policy focus heavily lies on children. Because if we look at the kind of more social factors um, and cultural factors that play a role in policy, then it might be easier to justify to take care of more vulnerable people and unaccompanied young um, child refugees are a really vulnerable group and that is very obvious to anyone. But to get back to the actual real-life situation, um, German asylum laws are what regulate um, who gets to stay and who does not and what people actually receive and those are very complex laws. Um, they are monitored by the Ministry for Migration and Refugees, the policy and uh, guidelines for practical responsibilities lie with the federal states and they get to make their own policies about everything from minimal care to mental health and psychosocial support policies. Because the federal states are not able to provide all this care on their own, they usually work together with the so-called free welfare associations like Caritas, Diakonie, Red Cross and the Workers' Welfare Association. Um, Most of them are tied to some form of other organizations like the church. We will return to this very interesting net of policy actors and their interactions later. Let's first um, look at some other uh, regional policy effects. What's really interesting is that um, there's a lot of policy transfer and spills that happen on a smaller level regionally. What I expected to happen before starting the research for this project was that I thought that there would be a lot of policy diffusion and the EU would make policies that uh, would then bind the member states to follow them. Um, But surprisingly enough, nothing like this happened. I also could not find some of the more international policies like the Interagency Standing Committee pyramid on um, psychosocial support in any of the regional policies. What I could find is a lot of um, policy transfer in the sense that knowledge about policies, administrative arrangement and institutions in one system actually spread to the other and, and aided and influenced the policies there. So policies that worked in one municipality would then spread to the other, often through the um, NGOs and free welfare associations that actually were included in them. 
different municipalities, but also um, even different federal states often work together and have different policy pilots that they run. Um, and if it works, it actually is applied in many other regions. So that is very interesting. What is also important to note is that there's a lot of policy spillover, meaning that if um, a refugee policy on a federal level can often also affect a mental health and psychosocial support policy because um, those policies heavily affect each other and funding and a lot of other things are tied to it. So that's why policy spillovers um, happen a lot within the refugee policy area um, and especially in policy related to mental health and psychosocial support just because there is not a lot of very clear-cut policy so the bigger changes on the general level also heavily affect this more loose and new policy field. Similarly um, also if there is fundamental changes in the German mental health system um, especially because there are no laws um, connected to mental health in the German system, then that could also have a heavy impact on refugee mental health, just because, well, refugees want the general mental health um, treatments, then they are in the same system and receive the same treatments as the German people do. So that means if the German mental health system changes, that also have heavy effects on refugee mental health. To better understand how this works in practice, let us return to Mary's example. So I met Mary um, when she already lived in the refugee accommodation in my hometown in Germany. This uh, housing was actually provided by um, the municipality. And the people who came to kind of check that everything was there. And if people were needed any help were volunteers and I was one of them. So we kind of made sure that the families who lived there actually had everything that they needed. So we were volunteers in connection to the municipality. But for um, health care and everything, health insurance was uh, again provided by the state, coordinated by the federal state. And um, the Caritas, so a church organization, um, actually provided the resources like cars, and helpers to actually take people to their um, medical visits that had the language skills to accompany people to make sure that they actually get the care that they need and can communicate with the mental health, but also um, just physical health professionals. So there were a lot of people actually involved in the process. And this is also where it gets very interesting in the German case, because um, it's very interesting to see how refugee policy and also refugee mental health and psychosocial support policy actually makes all the actors interact. So let's return to Mary and let's say that she would need some mental health support because she's struggling. What would she actually do? So what you first um, could do is talk to one of the responsible people. Social workers regularly come by there to see if everything is all right. She could let someone know that she thinks she needs help. Or she could go to one of the refugee mental health centers. There, ideally, she would get um, a first diagnostic talk. And after that, they would see if she is actually in need of stationary or ambulant mental health treatment. 
or if there's other things that can be done to improve her state. What gets really difficult here is that what a lot of people want is to be able to work or to be able to do something to pass their time in a manner that seems to make sense to them, kind of have a purpose and have something to do, and that is usually not possible. That is also what Vincent um, told me in one of um, our talks. He said that you just really don't have the chance as an asylum seeker to work in the system or do anything else to pass the time, which is what really gets most people and it what leads them into those negative mental health states. It's even that people prefer to go back than being stuck in the system. Since it doesn't move in any direction, I have certainly experienced that it can wear people down. Wear them down and attack them hard. It certainly even destroys some of them regarding their mental health. So there is um, actual medical treatment, like in the sense that if somebody has a depression, a way can be found to psychologically cure it. But if there's other things that are making people um, feel bad, there's very little that can be done on that side. So what I remember from my talks with Mary is that she always wanted to continue her training. She was a hairdresser and she wanted to kind of go to hairdressing school in Germany to be able to get her license here to be able to carry out her work. And no matter what we tried, that is just not something that was possible. So she could have gotten that psychological treatment, but she couldn't have gotten what she actually wanted. And that is what makes this area of refugee mental health so difficult to navigate because it's often systemic factors that are negatively impacting people's mental health. But before I wrap up, I still owe you a bit of an explanation about the actors that I was teasing um, at earlier. So the Ministry of Health had a cooperation with a number of organizations that also play a large role in this net of policy actors that we did not discuss before. Those are on the one hand the free welfare associations that we already talked about, but also um, organizations like the Federal Chamber of Psychotherapists and the, uh, it's called, if the direct translation would be Action Psychologically Ill. Those are people who have some kind of mental health struggles who come together to form this association. And we have the German Trauma Foundation. All of them worked on a project with the Ministry of Health to provide trainings and guidelines um, to be able to actually carry out this special policy focus on young unaccompanied refugees and their mental health. So all of these associations play an important role, especially the Federal Chamber of Psychotherapists is important here because they already have quite a lot of influence on the general mental health policy and that are now pushing more and more into the area of refugee mental health and psychosocial support, which is interesting because they're on the ground. Those are the people who are working with the refugees and asylum seekers on a daily basis. So they have a special view and also a special position when it comes to lobbying that is more bottom up and to the point. But if we continue uh, with the special focus on children, there is more that comes uh, to mind here that is very interesting. On paper, those kids can really be a threat to the German welfare state just because they have to be treated in the exact same way that orphaned children in Germany 
have to be treated. So they receive the same treatment as the local children, which is, of course, very expensive. So the Association of Municipalities approximates that um, it costs 50,000 euros a year to take care of one of these children. And um, they often have a very complex need structure that needs a lot of coordination and that needs this very strong net of actors. So the funding comes from the federal level as well as the policy focus. Um, then the federal states actually get to carry out this um, government policy and they get to decide how they want to do this. And they often transfer their powers to the municipalities who are often not able to deal with this uh, properly because of funding because it's so complicated. So this is where other organizations like the free welfare organizations, the church organizations um, and other organizations like the Federal Chamber of Psychotherapists come in because they really coordinate their efforts and they can then see what happens on a local level and carry that back to the federal and the national government to make changes to the policy. So there we see how it's a net and how it goes in both directions. So funding and policy guidance trickles down, but then um, feedback of those policies kind of goes back up through a bottom-up approach. And um, because the organizations are so heavily involved and those organizations kind of work on all in all federal states, policies that work kind of spread that way through the federal states, as we also discussed earlier. So there's a lot of new relational patterns um, and innovations that happen through this complicated situation of the policy focus on children and um, through their complex need structures that need to be dealt with by a lot of different actors. So let me recap real quick what we talked about today. First, we learned about the general system in Europe and we followed Mary on her way to Germany. Then we discussed what the situation is actually like in Germany what the mental health um, policies are, what the general refugee policies are, how they interact, and what all the actors in the field are. We learned that the federal states have most responsibility, but because they are unable to really deal with it, NGOs and other organizations like the free welfare organizations really play a big role in refugee mental health. And that because of them, policy usually um, spreads regionally. We also learned that um, because the psychotherapists and the um, relatives of mentally ill people, organization um, and social workers have so much policy making power in other areas already, there is a big potential for bottom up policies in Germany to actually get to those systematic changes that are really needed to improve people's mental health. Because as we heard from all of the people that we met in this podcast today, is that it's often not actually the mental health in the sense that we usually speak about it. And in the Western sense, in the medicalized sense is the problem. It's not that people are schizophrenic and are not getting help or have a clinical depression and are not getting help. It's that the, the circumstances and the situations that they are placed in often make their mental health situations bad 
And we can treat that as much as we want. If we don't treat a system that creates those bad mental health states, we can't really get anywhere. Which still doesn't mean that those policies aren't incredibly important, that, that people should receive professional help. It's more that the professional help can't do much without the systematic changes as well. This also brings me back to where we started this podcast today with a little reflection about COVID-19 and the current situation. A lot of us are also struggling with being confined in our homes with not knowing what's happening next. And that only um, on a scale where we still are in the homes um, that we were in before and did not have to leave our lives as they are behind in the literal sense and in the material sense. We are still in our spaces. And I still hope that to some extent this can kind of help us um, understand the situation of refugees a little more. It can kind of bring the empathy back and bring the understanding back and, yeah, get people to think about again what they have and how other people are denied that, not by choice, but because they had to give up their entire livelihood and flee from something. And that, that actually means something. So I hope that we understand now a little better what uncertainty really means and how really bad those implications can be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry that I have to end the podcast today on a kind of sad note, but I think that's also appropriate because this is not a very happy topic. I would like this podcast to be ended by the words of my lovely guests. So, yeah, I think there just has to be a balance between all of this. Like also the physical health and the medication maybe for mental health issues, but also the the part where you really have people caring about you. Like you said, the community-based stuff where you have everything um, provided mm -hmm. that you need and you can just talk about all the traumas and everything you've been through so that these uh, really deep-rooted problems can be solved as well. Um, but that needs a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of uh, sources, of course, resources, because it's a hard work, like something that not be, many people want to do because it's slow, it's slow progress. Also, everything with community-based, it's slow progress. Mm. You have a lot of patience and someone who supports you also. Um, exactly. So I think it's something that in the long run is totally worth it, but it doesn't show immediate effects maybe. And like everything in our society right now, everything that doesn't show immediate effects is um, not necessarily welcomed or like seen as um, as helpful, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that has to be changed in general about mental health and about a lot of things. That's something that is in the long run very efficient should be stick to. Like should be stuck to. Yeah. Okay. I would like to thank everybody who spoke to me and made this podcast possible again. Thank you so much for listening. I had. A lot of fun researching this topic, learning more about it, and hopefully sharing it with you in a meaningful and interesting way. If you would like to learn more, all the articles and papers I talked about today can be found in the description of this podcast. I would be very happy to welcome you again um, to explore the topic of politics and psychology a little more with me next time. When we again say, wait, is this politics or psychology? And everything in between. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. And I hope we'll hear each other again very, very soon. <laughs> Bye. Have a lovely day.